This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, and Jared Mack here on the show. Welcome to your Wednesday edition or whatever day it is that when you listen to this, uh, Oregon has wrapped up its ninth spring practice of fall camp. Um, that happened on the 12th, the day before this podcast was recorded. And it's it's been a little bit since we've hopped on to discuss what we've seen in practice. And now's the, a good time because uh, we've had a scrimmage. We've had a couple more, uh, a couple 11 on 11 situations where we've been able to watch. And uh, we've, we've had some injury news and some clarification on injury news as well. Dante Manning, if you missed it, suffered some kind of leg injury um, during Saturday's scrimmage. The first scrimmage of spring football was wheelchaired out of practice at the time. Lanning wasn't able to give us much. Understandably so, he just come off the football field. Uh, but now, after having a couple of days, uh, it seems to be a uh, – I don't want to know if it's say if it's best case scenario, but it doesn't sound like it's nearly as bad as you would think when a guy gets wheeled out of practice. It's certainly not worst case because we could have had a conversation where Lanning said his it's a serious injury, he's having surgery tomorrow and his season's done. And and again, I we can't we don't know the you know the diagnosis, we don't know what MRI showed, we just know what has been said and what we've seen with our own eyes, which is which we should know even before I read the quote is that we saw Dante Manning entering practice with that same leg brace we talked about. Um walking adequately. I mean, it was obvious I mean, obviously he's dealing with an injury. So I mean I'm not gonna say like he was, you know, doing cartwheels and skipping around, but he was he was moving fine for somebody who's just obviously suffered a significant injury or an injury. And here's what Lanning said shortly after practice. Uh, he has an injury. He's going through recovery right now. We don't think it'll be a long-term deal, but obviously we're monitoring it, and his safety is first. So, um, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say, or I would assume, I don't know if we'll see him again this spring in terms of being a full participant, um, but certainly this doesn't sound like something that's going to, like, cost him his entire year. I'll also note there was a lot of optimism a year ago around this time when Sean Dollars was injured. And, again, I don't know this – don't know the similarities and the injuries because I don't know them. So maybe I'm speaking at a turn, but coach speak can be hard with injuries to kind of know exactly what to read from it. But I certainly, as Matt said at the opening, um, it, 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 we could have gotten a lot worse information from Dan, a lot worse news than what what he said. And what he said is it's, he doesn't think it's long-term and I think everybody should be pretty pleased with that outcome. If that's ends up being what the case is and and he's able to play at some point this fall. I think this is, as close to best case as you can get, at least for now, just based on what Lanning has said and what our eyes have told us. Um, because when you see a player get wheelchaired out of practice, that's usually, I don't know, that's Not probably good. a top three things of what you don't want to see from a defensive player or any player in the football field. Um, and then your mind you know, starts to wander as uh, who would be the, the second first string quarterback. So if, if, if Manning is okay, in terms of not out for the season. Um, I think that's a that's a pretty darn good scenario. And again, like Eric mentioned, he still has his leg brace on, on his left leg. Um, but he's walking on it. He's uh, going through warm-up drills with the team. He's wearing a helmet for whatever reason why they have him wearing a helmet while on the field doing warm-up drills. I don't know. But um, he's going through them. He's, you know, wearing his jersey he's still very much a part of the warm-up drills and the team um he just is wearing a leg brace uh so i think that's a good sign as well um we did see him hot-footed between the the, like the marcus mariota sports performance center and the and the the bahovsky center in the rain to try to get out of there so i think that was another good sign is that he was you know able-bodied to i guess i don't know jog ish jog ish with a with a leg brace on him so 
that's a positive development. And for for Lanning, I you know we're probably not going to get much out of him for any of the injury talk, including what we got out of Justin Flo. Do we want to just jump into that? The flow. Yeah, part? I mean Justin Flo's. We saw he's doing more in practice from what we're we're seeing. He's not full go yet, but it's positive news there too. Yeah, I mean he's he's still in trainers and and clearly not doing a whole lot. But what we did see on Tuesday, which was encouraging, was the last individual drill we watched. He was simulating kind of a running back's role in what was a shadow drill, so it was obviously not full contact, but he was getting in and out of cuts, which is something I don't think you would do if you're months and months away from returning from a broken foot. So I thought that was pretty encouraging. Uh, and, and landing, by the way, and again, we've seen very little from Justin Flo in practice actually doing things. <laughs> this was like the first time I'd seen him actually – seemingly yeah. be kind of a participant in a drill and again it's 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 not like he was playing linebacker he was basically being kind of almost a scout team guy in terms of how they were utilizing him um but here's what dan landing said and, and i thought this was kind of notable he says that he's trending back it's probably too early to tell one way or the other if we're going to see him for the spring game um he's but then he said he's trending back and we're getting him into a bit of drill work each day so this one to me felt pretty darn positive the fact that he hasn't been ruled out for the spring game which is again like about 10 days from now um i think the sense certainly had been like that was probably a real long shot and it probably mm -hmm. still is to be honest but the fact that that hasn't something he could completely rule out of the equation i thought was positive and the fact again we're starting to see him do some things is is also positive because this has been eight months now i think removed from an injury and that's a pretty good amount of time to to kind of get get back to health. So I think there was some concern about kind of where he stood. I know we had a question even earlier on on Tuesday morning on our message board about what's the latest with Justin Flo? Like, why has he been out so long? And we don't have all the answers, but the indication from Lanning I thought was really positive on, on that front too. It seemed I, as positive as it's going to be from Lanning. I don't anticipate to see Justin Flo or Dante Manning in the spring game or Popo Amabai or Keonwar Hudson or – or Brandon Dorless. I don't anticipate to see any of them, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, you know, it, it has been a while for Justin Flo in terms of an injury perspective on being able to rehab and come back to 100%. Um, there's probably more to it than we know, and that's fine. Uh, I would, if I were landing and I were this entire staff, I'd take those guys very slow and keep them rehabbing over the course of the spring term and the summer term, and until they're 100%, and they know that they can make every cut, make every jump. Um, it's just not worth it in terms of like getting these guys back to get them in the spring game so that the people who come to watch can see them. It's like their linebacking depth is pretty darn good. And even if they were to hypothetically, this is very hypothetical, start the season without Flo at linebacker, I think they'd be okay. I think Flo is obviously a, a, a tremendous talent, but there's no reason to rush him back, especially for the spring game. And uh, uh, same reason with Dante Manning, same reason with Dorless and, and everybody else who's on the, the, the injured list as of right now. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that Lanning didn't necessarily rule him out for the spring game. But again, like Eric said, 10 days away, I don't, it's probably not happening. I, I'm with Jared. I don't, I don't think either plays and I don't think there's a need for either of them no. to, to play in this game. We know what Flo can do. It's literally just, can you get healthy? And I felt like Manning kind of came on strong last year where, Yes, it'd be awesome to have him out there learning the system, and but it's not worth the, the risk of further injury, in my opinion. But nonetheless, uh, we've also got some discussion and some insight into um, depth charts. Um, I think most notably, let's we'll have you guys run through what we've seen the last couple of days, most recently on Tuesday. But first, before we dive into just the full group, quarterbacks, Dan has said, hey, like we don't have a first, second, or third team. We're rotating guys in, and we're, we're truly seeing that play out in, in practice right now because I think we've now seen three or maybe four 11-on-11 situations, and we've now seen the quarterbacks jumble everywhere. Ty Thompson's been the first quarterback. He's also been most recently the third quarterback. Jay Butterfield most recently was the second-string quarterback. Uh, I should say second quarterback to take the field. I shouldn't say second string. Uh, and then Bo Nix, he's been second, and then most recently he was first. Um, we're seeing the shuffling around, and I think that could be just 
seeing how things play out. And it could be a sign that this competition is pretty tight still. Yeah, I, I get a sense that the competition's actually pretty tight. And, you know, Chase Cota spoke with media yesterday, and I think one of the things he said that it maybe shouldn't surprise anybody because you're a receiver on a football team that has an open competition. You're probably not going to come out and vouch for a guy or put your, you know, put your backing behind a guy. You don't really see uh, that happen, especially in your first spring camp in a football team. That might be a way to alienate yourself a little bit. But he he really was complimentary of all all three guys, and I, I think that is probably where things stand. He said it was a real competition, and, and that's how it's felt. Um, you know, and we've said in past podcasts that it has also felt a little bit like Bo and Ty and then Jay. I think, you know, Tuesday, again, don't want to read too much into it, but giving it a shot with the second team is an indication that he's deservedly needs to be discussed in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, probably a little bit more than, than we've given him credit for. Um, you know, I I think it was notable. I think the last two times Bo has been, has resumed kind of that first team role. Um, I also think it's notable, this is just a slight aside here, that we're, we're seeing a little bit more fastball, which is the name of this drill where they do go 11-11. And I think that's because we're seeing more competition periods in practice. Um, you know, the first couple of weeks, the first couple of practices, I think you're seeing a lot of install. And now you've kind of gotten, this is another thing Landing said, was mm-hmm. you've now got most of it in. He said there's not a whole lot more they're putting in right now um, this spring. And so I think you're seeing them kind of go, okay, now you know what the playbook is. You know a lot of it. Let's see how you execute it. And we should know there were some up and down moments on Tuesday. They were they had, Dan Lanning had to stop drills with both the second team and third team offense because it wasn't going cleanly. Um, there was a you know a high snap. There was a false start. You know these are these are mistakes that have bit, but frankly, Oregon in the past recently in terms of pre snap issues. And Lanning's pretty clear on we're not letting that become an issue. I'm not going to say that the previous staff didn't stop practice to do that because I think it was Byron Cardwell who told you Matt like. Yeah. The previous staff did that. That's just how coaching works. But I was impressed with just kind of how quickly they reset and went, okay, you know, the tight end jumped. Let's redo this drill. Oh, the snap wasn't great. Let's redo this. Um, let's get another play in. Um, so that kind of stood out as well. Um, running through now just kind of the depth chart stuff. And, and actually, I should say, um, Nick's had a really nice pass to Byron Cardwell, who, by the way, was lining up out wide. It wasn't out of the mm-hmm. backfield. Um, and Cardwell was defended by Darren Barkins, who, as Jared will let us know later, or I'm letting you, I'm stealing your thunder here, Jared. Sorry to do it. Wow, that's, that's who's with, that's who replaced Dante Manning with the first team defense or the first group on the field on defense at corner. Um, thought that was a nice throw, as Jared will probably attest, being the defensive guy, probably was maybe. It was an offensive pass interference. There was Darren little- Barkins was thrown. <laughs> there was a little bit of a, a push by, by Byron, but the officials did not, in, in, you know, Typical Pac-12 fashion, no no flag was thrown, which is actually probably atypical considering every contact usually is def- is, is usually on the defense. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's a little different. I digress. Um, but Byron was with the first group, as I just kind of shared there. Weren't a whole lot of other, honestly, kind of 11-on-11 positive notes. It doesn't mean it was uh, terrible. I think Troy Franklin caught a pass, and I, I don't really remember too many other completed passes throughout, throughout the rest of it. Um Franklin joined Dante Thornton and Terrence Ferguson and Seven McGee um, working with Cardwell and Knicks with that first group that was on the field. The offensive line has been pretty solidified now that Alex Forsyth is back. And I think we should note that the last time we watched fastball, it was not in pads. And Forsyth was is kind of working his way back. Seems to be pretty close to 100% or, or at least capable of taking full part um, in pads. I thought that was pretty notable. But left to right, it was Jones, Bass, Forsyth, Walk. Um, and Big Sala, I think that's kind of, if I was writing a depth chart right now, a prediction for fall, I think that's where I'd land. It seems like that's kind of the unit they like. Um, and I've always sort of seen Stephen Jones as as being somebody who could be a prototypical left tackle with his size and athleticism. And TJ Bass was great there a year ago, but even TJ mm-hmm. told, I think it was you, Jared, that he kind of is more comfortable man. left guard. Yeah. So um, he's kind of got a fit there. Second group with Butterfield, Whittington in the backfield with him. Coda, Crocker, Hudson are the receivers. Webb was at tight end. Um, notably, Jackson Powers Johnson. This is the first time we've seen him, I think, uh, take part in 11-11 on offense. He was the second group center. Um, and you had Big Ope, Feope Lalu at one of the tackle spots, Dawson Jaramello at the other. Marcus Harper and Charlie Pickard uh, were your guards. The third team was not a lot of scholarship guys. I'll just share that. Isaiah Bravard, Josh Delgado, Justice Lowe were the receivers. Um, and Tyler Nanny uh, and LaVon Llewellyn, who are both walk-ons, uh, were the, 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 
joined Ty Thompson, I guess, as the tight end and the uh, running back with that group. So there's kind of a rundown on the offense. I don't think, like, as I said, there weren't a ton of big, like, explosive plays like we saw in the previous one where Sean Dollars mm-hmm. got free for a long pass. And I think Troy Franklin and Chris Hudson had some nice plays. This was a little bit sloppier, frankly, as I said earlier, in terms of execution. And, and I don't think we saw a ton. We also have to know that they do a bunch of stuff that's a lot more exciting once we're not in there. And I'm sure there were a lot more highlights. And you can probably go read Rob Mosley's practice report to get a, a better indication of what might have happened during those periods. Yeah, it's probably a lot more fun to be in there for the full two hours or whatever it is. But um, quick on the quarterback thing, definitely feels like a real competition. Uh, not saying it hasn't in years past, but yeah, I'm, I'm saying it hasn't in years past. We'll just do that. Um, this one feels this one feels different. You know, the the change of Bo to first to second team, or Butterfield from third to second, or tie from first to third, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, it feels real. It feels like Lanning is really and, and Dillingham are really trying to figure out who leads them best. And I think that's a good thing that there's not just a clear cut answer right now in the spring. Um, I don't think that they're, I don't think that they would have named a starting quarterback in the spring. I think we've talked about this on this podcast before. I think Matt brought it up a long time ago. Just that's not what you do. Um, and it's not what you do. So we'll, we'll see in that. And hopefully we get um, maybe a few more fastball segments before the scrimmage, but uh, until the spring game, you know, we'll, we'll, I don't know. We'll hope to see somebody kind of take a step up, I guess, but I don't know. Well, I don't really anticipate that happening, but what I do anticipate happening is the reading of the first group, second and third group that were on the field for defense this time around. So we'll start on the defensive line because Eric already spoiled the secondary, uh, Trevin, my Sam Taimani, Suava Pody and Braden Swinson were on the defensive line for the first group on the field. This is the, First or second time, I think I've seen Swinson on the field for this fastball section, which is a good thing. But again, I will remind everybody, as I have before, there are plenty of players who do not take part in this drill. And that is for whatever reason that they do not. They could be injured. They could not be. It could be a group setting, whatever the case may be. If you're not hearing a person's name that you think could be starting, there's a chance that they just didn't participate. Linebacking core for the first group was Jeffrey Bassa and Noah Sewell. Star safety was Jamal Hill. The deep safeties were Triclos Bridges and Brian Addison, which seemed to be the, the first group safeties. Um, Steve Stevens still seems to be recovering from his injury last year, not taking part, participation in these drills. Um, cornerbacks, Christian Gonzalez, and as Eric mentioned, Darren Barkins for the injured Dante Manning. Um, it seems like Christian Gonzalez will be you know, the first team cornerback opposite of whoever is healthy. Uh, it's interesting that Barkin's got the first shot, um, which leads me to the second team, which will start in the quarterback route, which has Avante Dickerson and Julio Florence. So Florence has been second team cornerback since he's got to, or second group, I should say, cornerback since he's got to Oregon. Um, that may or may not change. Obviously, Oregon still has a couple more cornerback coming in in this uh, in the early enrollees, well, regular scheduled enrollees, I should say. Um, but still notable that Jaleel is there. On the defensive line for the second group, we have Jake Shipley, uh, Keanu Williams, Marcel Fossey, and Jabril McNeil as an outside linebacker. The first time we've seen him line up at all during any of these fastball 11-on-11 portions. Uh, linebackers, Jackson LaDuke and Keith Brown. Star safety of Bennett Williams and Donovan Dalton and J.J. Greenfield were your safeties, which is the first time that unit has put been put together on second team. And if you didn't know, Donovan Dalton is a University of Hawaii transfer. He's six foot four, two hundred pounds. He is quite a large-bodied safety. Um, certainly looks physically the part of a, of a player of Oregon's caliber. Um, but this is the first time we've seen him in the second group. Um, like the offense, the third team was mostly walk-ons, but Jonah Miller was out there. Uh, Harrison Taggart and Michael Roth were out there as well. Um, you know, that's about it in terms of, oh, and uh, Anthony Jones, excuse me. Didn't see the five, but yeah, that's basically the third team. Um, but again, there are plenty of players who could have participated, but didn't for whatever reason that may be. Um, and I, I expect that first team defensive line like if I were doing a fall projection, um, I would expect that to look much, much, much different 
than what it does look like now. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We come back. Um, we've had some opportunities to talk with a couple coaches, a couple players, and we'll, we'll discuss the biggest takeaways from all of that coming up next here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, welcome back to the Otson Audible's podcast. Um, one thing, we we spoke on, on Tuesday with a lot of guys. Uh, running backs coach Carlos Lachlan, um, obviously Dan Lanning. Receiver Chase Coda, running back Byron Cardwell. Kicker Camden Lewis. Uh, and then safety Bennett Williams. And let's let's start with Lachlan. Um I think, Eric, you mentioned it in our Slack channel um, after interviews were done and you were transcribing just impressive stuff that he said. And I, I think Oregon fans will, when they hear him talk or when they watch his press conference videos or what have you, I, I think it'll be hard for them to not want to get fired up and, and want to run you know, through a wall or something like this guy bleeds passion and not just a really cool story, how he got into coaching, why he is coaching and just the relationship he has with his players. Yeah. And we should note you can go watch on the site. We have both video and then I transcribed it. So you can, if you like to prefer to read, you can read. I know sometimes we get the criticism that they want more transcription of things and that's available as well. Um, I audibly said to myself, man, I love this like four times while transcribing it because it's just the, as Matt said, the passion is so clear. It's so genuine. Um, some of the things he talked about were like, just like what a unique entrance into coaching. I mean, he refers to himself as the walk-on coach. And I think some listening, maybe more more than a couple are familiar with some of this, but I'll give kind of the Reader's Digest shortened version of this. It's a guy who uh, you know, had an opportunity in the NFL, hurt his knee, ended up playing some arena football, got out of football for a while, got into law enforcement, um, and just kind of loved being around football. And so he was a volunteer high school coach in Memphis, Tennessee, um, while also being a, uh, you know, he said he was a correctional officer, he was a police officer. At one point, he was in SWAT. I mean, he did a bunch of different, he did government detail, he said. I mean, he had a bunch of different uh, law enforcement jobs he did for, I think, sounds like six to eight years for a while down in Memphis and ultimately decided he loved coaching and basically just walked over to the university of Memphis and said, can I just, this is why he's the walk-on coach just walked in and said, Hey, I want to, I want to do this. And some of the running backs that he helped develop again, not as the official running backs coach, like include, I think there's five NFL guys at Memphis that he worked with over like a three year period. Antonio Gibson being probably the most, you know, notable one, uh, uh, Tony Pollard being another, um, there's, there's a bunch, and then there's a, video actually that was pretty cool with he and Dan Lanning and, and Lachlan talking to all those guys from I think that was maybe February or January um, but this guy had a bunch of success there and was able to basically parlay that into a you know a full-time job not as a running backs coach but as a director of high school operations first at Memphis and then at Florida State and then a running backs job um, at Western Kentucky he comes to Oregon with one year of being a collegiate assistant coach and his path and how much he cares for his players and his desire to be the best at what he does, like all that stuff really came across. And I think I'll, I'll leave some of that just to the video and going and read the podcast. Cause I, I don't think I can do it justice. Just kind of his, I, I guess, personality is, is just worth kind of witnessing in terms of like, this is a guy who he kept saying, I just want to pour into my players. It's all about the player. It's not about what I, you know, it's not always about football. It's about building connections. And, I think I can't do that justice, but what I will say that really stood out was towards the end, talked about kind of how he was trying to build relationships with the previous great Oregon running backs. And, you know, notably the running backs coach, Gary Campbell, who 
was Oregon's running backs coach for like almost 25 years, you know, mid eighties to mid 2010s or I guess 30 years. Sorry. Gosh, I did my math wrong. I forgot it was that long. Yeah. I mean, it's like 33 years, I think um, for Campbell. And that's something that's pretty cool to hear, especially somebody who's been around Oregon for a while, who understands Campbell's um, value and the relationships he built and the running backs that came and played for him. Um, this was somebody who was really pivotal to Oregon's success for a really long time and to use him as a resource and to understand and to be savvy enough to understand that, not that other coaches maybe don't, but to, to seek that out, I think really stood out. Um, and, and the fact that he's also built relationships, he said with like Michael James and Kenyon Barner and like Garrett Blunt, he ran through about half a dozen of them and I don't want to, you know, miss any of them again. It's in the transcript I put out. Um, but this is somebody who's, I think really cares. The care factor is very, very evident. And I think the effort he's gone through, not just in developing himself as a coach, but also trying to understand the Oregon program and kind of its history and trying to, he said, live up to a standard. Like you just kind of, again, I was nodding and kind of going, man, this is awesome throughout just the transcription process. And I think a lot of Oregon fans who've, you know, listened to the video or, or I guess watched the video, listened to the audio or, um, read the transcript, kind of think can come away feeling similar. So if you haven't, I would recommend taking kind of a quick peek at that because it's a pretty cool story. And I think his approach will be one that I think will hopefully maximize a position group, which has always been a, a strength at Oregon, but um, certainly could use maybe a little extra juice now with some younger guys and, the, you know, the turning of the guard from the Travis Dye, CJ Verdell years to now Byron Cardwell, Sean Dollars, No Whittington, Jordan James, and, and whoever else is with this group going forward. Just a quick thing on Lachlan, you know, he was a, an out of the blue hire. You had really never heard of him at all. Um, like Eric mentioned, he was just like the, the high school operations guy at Memphis. And then he had one year of running back coach at Western Kentucky, which is a school that not a whole lot of people are, are know about or really watch or anything like that. Um, but this, this whole interview, the first time we were able to talk to him, Definitely sold me on who he is as a human being. Um, just an unbelievable person. Just has a great story and has, I, it was like he was a motivational speaker the entire time, but he was just talking about himself and how he prepares every day and how he prepares his teammates and how he, or not his teammates, but how he prepares the, the kids that he's coaching and how he, you know, he, he thinks he's going to be a failure if he if all that the, the kids that, he, that are under him only know how to run like a zone split or something like that and don't know how to be a successful adult in like in real life scenarios, which is kind of like this overarching theme with the Oregon coaching staff about how they want to teach these kids how to be better men. I think Lanning said it like in his introductory press conference, he wants them to be like better men, better husbands, better boyfriends, better what I like all of, all of the list of things to be better at. And I think that's, that speaks volumes. Cause then when you hear it from the players, they all say how great of people this, these, this Oregon staff is. And you really saw that on Tuesday with coach Lachlan. I thought it was just, honestly, yeah, it was really impressive. Eric, I remember you shooting me a text being like, yeah, like this is, this is just awesome stuff. And um, I only caught, a couple minutes of his interview at, at, at media, but yeah, you could, I could listen to that guy talk all the time. Like I'm one, like Eric or like Matt mentioned, I'm one of those guys who, if, if he's giving me a motivational, like talking to, I could run through a brick wall, just point it out, which one you want me to go through. That's the one. Okay, cool. I'll do it because yeah, it's just, he has a lot of confidence within himself and his ability to, to be a coach and, um, I was honestly, I was pretty blown away about who he is as a person, considering that the hire was out of the blue. Nobody had any, any idea who this guy was. We should also discuss um, real quick. Cam uh, Camden Lewis was speaking. And I think, look, kickers are people too. And Camden Lewis is probably one of the coolest dudes on the team, I, th I think, um, when, when you talk to him. The conversation with him started with golf uh, and, and ended with some very insightful thoughts on just how Dan Landing is changing the special teams focus at Oregon. I mean, I, I think all three of us have said at different points in spring practice, like, man, they work a ton on special teams. Well, at least the part where we're in there. And 
Lewis echoed that and also talked a lot about how he's working on mechanics and improving himself this year for you know another opportunity to, to, to have his job. He is really insightful. And again, I would can't recommend enough going and watching him talk about place kicking. And I know that's maybe boring for some who they just don't really care enough. And they just want to see him hit extra points and kick the ball into the end zone. But like, frankly, like he's just fun to talk to and has got interesting perspectives and a pretty good sense of humor. I, I always enjoy chatting with Camden about kicking stuff. Um, you know, I think a couple of things that stood out, just like the differences from how they construct practice. Jared's laughing because I don't know. Um, um- I'm just laughing at the way like you enjoyed talking to Camden about kicking stuff. I, <laughs> the way you said it, it was very funny. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take it. I, I, I mean, because I, I, geek out over some of the, it's the just special funny, teams. Man. You're the special teams geek out of the three of us. No, so, doubt like, about. it's it's fun to kind of get, and, and not not that I even necessarily. I mean, I, there's probably stuff that's so far above my understanding. Like I was so intrigued with last year with him talking about Karsten's long snapping and sort of the the pace of that and how that impacts the whole operation and everything. Like I find that stuff to be really fascinating, but I mean, I think the thing that stood out most probably just off the top was as, as Matt said, a, kind of a, a more, a centralized focus on special teams and the way that they're constructing and including special teams and competition drills. Like it sounds like the previous staff had basically, you know, a set period of time where you kicked field goals and it was, you're going to kick a 40 or I, I don't know the distance he didn't say, but you're going to kick this distance. You're going to kick that distance. And what Camden said is that, and, and and also Camden said that they would only kick maybe three times per practice in those kind of settings. Um, Camden was saying that the current setup is like they'll be doing a two-minute drill or a third and long drill, and well, you know, and it's actual football. It's okay. Well, the offense couldn't pick up this first down on third and long. Now you're kicking a 38-yard field goal, or oh, it's a two-minute drill. We got it to the 12-yard line. I guess you're you know you're kicking a, a close to a 30-yard field goal or whatever. It is based upon situational stuff, which keeps them on their toes where you can't just, you know, prepare for a 40 yard field goal on the left hash or, you know, a 36 yard field goal on the right hash or whatever you have. It's dependent upon the situation. And and he was really, I think, complimentary of that because it continues even in the offseason months from actual game environment. It feels like a real game situation. Um, And I, I thought. Again, I, I'm not here to be reductive of the previous staff. This just sounds more fun for if you're a specialist. And we watch kickers and, and all those long, you know, the long snappers and the punters at practice. They're oh, kind of standing God. around doing not a lot at times. So the fact that they get to be kind of engaged and feel like they're a part of something at some point, it's like I'm kind of like rooting for the specialist to kind of – you could kind of sense Camden was just kind of enjoying the fact that it like he felt like he was involved a little bit more maybe. Um you know, there's a bunch more. I just transcribed them up a story up on the site. But, you know, I guess just Cam's priority this offseason is working on, and I think this will hopefully make Oregon fans happy, and it'll make Oregon fans more happy if he succeeds, but it is, is working on kickoffs and hitting the ball into the end zone and the consistency <clears throat> there because he was not great last year. I think he was eighth or ninth in the Pac-12 in kickoff – sorry, touchback rate. Um, and he also noted, like – and I have these stats pulled up here, but, you know, at Penn State last year, Joe Lorg, who's the new uh, special teams coordinator, also coaches, I think, the Nichols. Um, Penn State was fifth last year in kickoff coverage, and I think they were eighth in punt return coverage. He's been an excellent special teams coach, and that's been consistently – like, consistently, he's their top ten at Penn State in previous stops. Like, he's one of the best special teams coach in the country. And what Camden said was – Part of that has been that Joe Lorig is really good at identifying and developing kickers and punters that will put the ball in opportune situations because a big part of the job is if you can kick the ball, as he said, you know, five seconds in the air and have it land in the end zone, it's probably pretty unlikely you get a return. And if you do get a return, your coverage guys are down there. And so his focus right now is, is trying to improve that because I think Oregon was, again, near the bottom of the conference in kickoff coverage last year. I know, again, M was low on touchback percentage, but there was also just like collectively they weren't very good at defending kicks. In fact, let me see really quick where Oregon finished nationally in, in kickoff last year. They were 103rd, which is not ideal. Good. Yeah, real, real good. Yeah. 130 teams. So they were, you know, back quarter of the, of the country in that stat. Um, 
if he can kick the ball more consistently, that's going to really help on special teams. So uh, there's more, and I'm going to have a story up on the site, probably breaking down things that maybe some folks aren't as interested in, but I'll enjoy writing it, and some select folks will enjoy reading it, I hope. I'll enjoy reading it. We always love we always love the specialist days. Uh, I think we get our, our good Australian friend Tom Snee coming up soon. But yeah, it was good to hear. It was good to listen to Cam to talk. Um, like Eric said, it's he's somebody who's really interesting to talk to on the football team, which is strange because a lot of people just are like, oh, you know, he's he's the kicker. He's there to kick footballs, and yes, he is there to kick footballs. But he is clearly trying to to get better. Um, you know, we saw after like his freshman and sophomore campaigns where there were like you know, a lot of question marks about Oregon's kicking. And that's when they had Henry Cattleman kind of, he walked on and took his spot at one point and he redeemed himself in, in this past season. But working on kickoffs is going to be extremely important for Oregon. Um, I think that was always a worrisome thing when they just couldn't get a touchback almost ever until like the Alamo Bowl where Will Hutchinson came in and uh, took over for kickoff duties, which could be a thing this year, but it's it's nice to see that Camden is is trying to prevent that from happening. Um, yeah, it's just you know th- those those issues were always prevalent under Mario Cristobal, and to and I, I, we've talked about this before. Like Matt started this all with the the attention to detail on the specialist drills or special team drills at the beginning of practices is nice to see, and I'm sure that the previous regime worked on special teams and worked on kick coverage and all that. And we didn't get to see it during media when the practice was outside of the media timeline. But I wasn't necessarily surprised to hear that Camden Lewis took three field goal attempts like per practice. Like that is, I would expect it to be three times a week. Um, It's, they never gave him an opportunity to, to really, try and make a field goal. And maybe that was the confidence from the staff. Maybe it wasn't, but you know, if Oregon were inside the 40 yard line, they'd go for it on a fourth and four, fourth and three. If they were outside the 40 yard line, they just punt it. Um, there were so many, there's so few opportunities for there to be a field goal attempt. And then we saw in, you know, the, the first and second matchup against Utah, the atrocious kick coverage and punt blocking and, kick blocking and all that go on. And Utah's a very, very, very well-coached team. And it's not, it wasn't surprising then. And it's not surprising to look back on it with hindsight and be like, yeah, this is probably a result of not practicing a special teams unit that often. Um, So, you know, I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, how excited I am to see what the special teams unit looks like because we're seeing so much of it. And it because of Joe Lorig and his attention to detail at Penn State now coming over to Oregon, who seemingly hasn't had a lot of attention to detail on special teams. So I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to hear from Tom. I was excited to, to, to hear from Camden. And I'm Eric, I'm excited to read the article. I'm going to be one of those seven people who are <laughs> excited to read this. Love me some Cam Lewis. I, I think it's not just the Camden Lewis field goal thing is ludicrous. Like, Bobby Williams, who was the special teams coach, it was clear they, based on the level of play that that Oregon has had the last few years on special teams, they did not work enough on special teams drills. And we should clarify, Kim and the rest of the kickers, they kick throughout practice. Okay? Like that happened with Cristobal. We've seen that with that staff. We've seen it now with, with Laning. Like they're off. Most times when they're when the team is outside, they're inside kicking. When the team is inside, they're outside kicking in the rain, which sounds awful. Um, but that doesn't give you the full picture. They don't practice 11-on-11 11 11 with the pass rush or even 11-on air having to kick over kickers. And that's where Lewis brought up the fact that they only got three kicks of practice in a – game situation type atmosphere. And so I, I liked hearing um, how landing is changing, you know, that aspect of things at practice. But then Bennett Williams, I asked when Lewis said that I decided when Bennett Williams spoke, I'd ask him about it because he's a guy that's on special teams and his eyes lit up that they are doing a lot more work on special teams, not just kicking, but everywhere. And, 
Jared and Eric brought that up of you know, we, we see more stuff in, in practice right now. And, and it could be just the way practice is, is structured for when we're in there. But we see way more stuff. And Bennett brought up the fact that, you know, every practice now at Oregon starts with special teams work. And I think Joe Lorig, the special teams coordinator, who, who previously was at Penn State, who has been very good on special teams for a very long time while he's been there. Like, we kind of noticed this when they were making the hires. I think Eric pointed it out. But there's a we expected a big special teams you know, emphasis you know, with a lot of guys on staff having some kind of background in special teams. And it's starting to, to pay off, which is – I think a, a really big deal um, for for Oregon because, quite frankly, I mean, am I wrong here? Like that, I don't even know if you could say that they were decent in any area outside of punting, um, and that was their their punters just being really good. But outside of everywhere else, that I never really felt like they were really good at a certain spot. Cam was second team all conference last year, so we saw some improvement there. Um, I, they, they were fine. They, they were good when they were kicking the ball as a punt, you know, in punting situations. They weren't good at covering punts. They, again, they converted field goals and extra points this last year at a pretty high rate. Obviously, previously, that was not the case, which is why Camden was kind of in and out of the lineup and they made changes with Cattle, with Cattleman in 2020. Um, but yeah, kickoff coverage was never good. And I, I think, I think in general, and again, part of the thing that was notable that Cam talked about was kicking the ball into the end zone. Like it just seemed like that didn't happen very yeah. often. Like frankly, it seemed like Mm-mm. whether it was Camden Never. or even before Camden was here, and I guess that would have been largely previous staffs. Like Oregon just had a hard time kicking the ball in the end zone for a long time, um, and that has you know you could kind of make up with you know you kind of I guess make up the difference sometimes with team speed. I didn't think Oregon was that fast a couple last couple of years either, and especially that shows up no. in kickoff coverage. So no. all of this stuff kind of, yeah, it would be hard to argue that Oregon was good on special teams. They were certainly back half of the conference in most categories for the better part of the last half decade, at least. And honestly, I think I was looking at it. I think even under Chip Kelly, like they were not good in kick and punt coverage. Like hmm. I don't think Oregon's been a powerhouse. Like they've had good return guys, Certainly, they've had good place kickers. They've had good punters. They've had good individuals, um, and I'm sure part of the punt and kick return success and the kick and punt success is based upon others. But like coverage in general has not been really a strong suited Oregon as back far back as to like 2010 when I did some research. We also spoke with Bennett Williams. Let's end it with this discussion here, um, unless we have other pressing items we want to talk about. But Bennett Williams brought up his return. And I think it was paramount that he came back for this team. Um, He had a tough decision, sixth year of college um, and or go pro with 12 game sample size at Oregon. He played at Illinois. He was, I think, a ESPN All-American as a freshman, um, a freshman All-American that season, but 12 games at Oregon. And, he, he said that, you know, coming back, playing a senior year would, would, would help improve his draft stock. The money would, would gradually increase. And NIL is a big topic. And I asked him straight up, I was like, did, did the fact that you could now make money in college play any kind of factor in your decision of coming back as well? Um, as we were recording this podcast, a couple basketball players have come back to school citing the, the ability to make money in the NIL. And Bennett Williams said, yeah, he, he, it, it factored it. it he said it 100% did. Um, it, he mentioned it wasn't the number one thing and it wouldn't make nearly as much money as an NFL contract would make, but it would help him have some money in his pocket for an, while he's you know trying to improve his draft stock to make even more money. And I think this is like a lot of people, on the site have complained about NIL from a recruiting perspective. We know Brandon, we, we know uh, Lincoln Riley at USC complained about it the day after, uh, or a couple days after Josh Connolly Jr. committed to Oregon over USC. Um, read into that how you will. But I think this is one of the benefactors that could help Oregon and will help other athletes at other schools make their decisions to maybe stay in school a year longer or two years even 
because they can profit off their name, image, and likeness now, and it will make the college game better as well while helping, you know, in this case, Oregon have a potential All-American back at, at safety. Yeah, I think this helps on the fringes with guys that are borderline NFL. I don't, I'm not trying to take a dig at Bennett, but like, I, yeah. I don't know if he's drafted if he goes out. And I don't know if he'll be drafted if he goes out this upcoming year. I mean, I think he has a chance to make a roster. And, and I, I'm a fan of his. I think he's a good player. But a guy like that who it's there's no clear cut, you're not going to be a first, second, or third round pick. You might not get drafted. There's no guarantee on the financial part. You stick around, at least you're making a little money here. That might honestly be similar compensation probably won't be identical to what you'd make in the NFL if you made the practice squad or even, you know, the back end of the roster, but it's something and it's something that tied you over to maybe have the improvement in your final year in, in Bennett's case, a sixth year in college to maybe have the necessary strides to go out and then further your draft stock. And, and maybe he does rise and become a guy who is able to sign a, a million multi-million dollar contract here. I don't know. I mean, we'll see how the year goes, but like that has to at least now fit into the calculus, the equation of the decision-making, which for a long time was not the case. And these guys on the fringes so frequently would leave. And it would be sometimes confusing because it were it, oftentimes it was guys where you'd go, is he really going to get drafted? Like, why is he why is he going? Wouldn't he be better off coming back to college? And obviously these decisions aren't purely about money. Like these decisions are, as, as Matt said, the decision to come back to Oregon isn't all about the NIL deal. The decision to go to the NFL isn't always all about the financial implications. It plays a role, clearly. Um, but now that you, if, if you have the alternative of, hey, you can go take a shot on yourself and play in the NFL, and maybe you don't make anything and you end up having to go find another career path, or you can play in a smaller league, or you can come back to a school that can maybe develop you and make at least some money during that time period, that has to be attractive, at least part of the decision-making process. And clearly – as Matt said, Oregon's been Oregon fans have been pretty critical of NIL and Oregon's involvement using it without kind of maybe knowing the full picture. And I will say we don't know the entire picture. We don't have the entire idea of what all of this stuff is and how all of it's played out and the decisions it's impacted. Because frankly, it's not probably our position to just go ask everybody, hey, how much money are you making on NIL? Especially if they're not gonna like volunteer that information. You know, just like you wouldn't ask anybody on the street, hey, how much money are you making in your job? Like it would be weird for us to even go around right now and be like, hey, let's talk about how what our what, what our yearly salaries are. Like that's just kind of socially kind of not that's kind of frowned upon. So we don't know the full picture. And I think Oregon fans have been kind of, I'll use the term bedwetting this whole thing about how it's gonna like kill the Oregon program, how they're not gonna yeah. keep up really knowing what's been going on. And you hear a guy like Bennett talk about this. Um, I'm not going to make the declaration that NIL played a deal with Josh Connerly, but I think there was a quote at some point. I will. <laughs> I would. Factor. I'm just saying I don't know for a fact. Like, right. here's the money he was handed, but like, right, right. but like, clearly Oregon just landed a five star recruit who was had offers from everywhere, and we know five stars make money in this in these situations. And Oregon seemingly played ball, or seemingly had an NIL offer, or or, or at least a situation in place that was attractive. I, I think Oregon fans have been really concerned about this. I'll use the term again, bedwetting the whole thing. I think we can put to rest that like Oregon's going to get left in the dust entirely by this. I'm not going to say they're going to win every situation and that the money's always going to be on par with whatever the market value appears to be. And that market value, by the way, is like all over the place. I think it's really hard to mm -hmm. predict. But I think this has to be seen as a positive if you're an Oregon fan. Yeah. I mean, y'all remember like a couple weeks ago when, when Nico – I'm Alave, whose name I will never pronounce correctly, when he decided to go to Tennessee for an undisclosed but disclosed amount of money. Um, and every Oregon fan was just up in arms about how NIL and the SEC and, and USC was just going to take. It's fine. The market always corrects itself. Um, I, again, like Eric said, I'd be willing to go out and, and wager that NIL had a role, maybe a significant, maybe not a significant role in landing Josh Connerly. Um, I talked to Peyton Woodyard the other day, a five-star safety in the class of 2024, and he mentioned that NIL was discussed in his visit to Oregon that um, they showed off that they could that they could you know help a lot of things and that they could provide him with a lot of opportunities, just like what Bennett Williams said, where there's probably no better place to go than, than Oregon for NIL. Um, I mean, I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sick of the NIL discussion. I don't think it's a bad thing for football. I think these, these players are now 
being paid over the table rather than under the table. And I'm not trying to say that every program has done that. I'm sure plenty of them are clean. Probably, you know, Northwestern's very clean program. But Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Boston College, you got Stanford probably. I don't know. Um, it's just this is how it's going to go. And um, maybe Oregon didn't pony up the X amount of dollars for Nico, but they did for – Josh Carnley and a couple other guys. I think, you know, that it's just going to be how it's spent. Uh, I'm sure they have it's some type of pool of money, almost like a salary cap, which is what people have been complaining about recently. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're Oregon, you have some of the best sports connections in the world as a university. And I think now they've been a little bit on display. Um, and I think we have seen the NIL as bad talk subside just a little bit from the Oregon perspective. Now, has it probably increased from the USC perspective? I'm sure it did, but I think everybody is in this to, to spend some money. Um, and I guess it kind of depends, once again, where the recruit decides to go and not just about the money. All right. Um kind of unprepared planning here. Do we want to, are we, is there more we need to discuss from, from Tuesday's practice? Is there anything burning that you, you guys think needs to be brought up or have we hit the end of this podcast? I think um, we hit the end. I mean, I think the only other, I mean, I think Chase Coda that we'll have a story up on that at some point and his decision to pick Oregon, there's some kind of cool nuggets there. You know, his family, obviously his dad played at Oregon. His cousin was Brady Breeze who played at Oregon. He, grew up being a fan of Jeff Mayo and he's now wearing the same Jersey. I mean, like there's some cool kind of pieces there, um, but probably not enough to want to talk for 10 minutes on, if I'm totally honest. <laughs> probably not. Um, uh, I guess I appreciate Dan Lanning swearing while on the mic at practice. That was fun. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. Maybe he'll get in trouble. Go ahead. Um, it was fun. I mean, I, we never, obviously, you know, Mark Cristobal and the, that staff never had a microphone to tell everybody what they were doing. Um, but Dan just, you know, uh, when things went bad during the fastball, the 11 on 11, you know, he would, he would let us know. Uh, he let Tyler Nanny know the third string, uh, tight end, that poor guy. Um, I forgot what he did. I think he just false started and, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dan's just like, he just, uh, you know, gave gave Tyler Nanny a, a word of advice. And then, uh, sure enough, Tyler fixed it. So I thought that was fun. It's a cool little inside the look at, at the program and how Lanning operates, um, which I think is a good thing for this, for the, the, whole, the program as a whole and this team. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back later this week with one more. Uh, and then Oregon has their second spring practice or second spring scrimmage uh, on Saturday. And we'll speak with Dan Lanning after that as well. Maybe we'll have some information to pass along then as well. Until the next one, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.